All right, we're live here at the Milwaukee Muskie Expo. It's Friday night. We had a good day at the show. Brad, I thought we had a pretty good turnout, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. Um, you know, it's always fun to come to these shows, see a bunch of different people that we don't normally see, and uh, thanks to everybody that's shown up. Yeah, all one person. Wait, do we have anybody here that's watching us do this? No, nobody. <laughs> we're a little early, though. We still have a minute yet before 7 o'clock, so... We're kind of a bust, but that's typical with us, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, the, the interesting part to this is we got some cords laying on the floor. We got people coming through the booth, and uh, hopefully we don't uh, get unplugged at some point. Right. That's what I was hoping for, too. So let's talk about this. We have, so far, we have four guides standing in front of us. Five, because we'll include you. I'm just the idiot with the microphone, and I knew how to work the recorder, so that's why I'm, I'm here. That's why I'm always here anyways. After seeing the recorder, Jeff, uh, I realize why I'm not in charge. After working the recorder, I also realize why you're not in charge. <laughs> but anyways, okay. So we're going to talk to Steve Jensen, Sean Josephson, Brian Schaefer, Jeff Vandermortel. Those are the guys that we could bribe the most they were very easily bribable to come on this podcast oh, it's tonight going to cost you it's going to cost you a lot jeff really like more than pizza tonight yeah, maybe a little more than pizza all right so anyways uh we might have a little bit of background noise because we are live here in the musky mayhem tackle booth i'm staring at the musky innovations booth across from them all right so we're going to talk um we're going to i mean we're selling gear so we might as well talk gear right yeah, I think that's a great place to start. I mean, if you think about it, that's what everybody's here at these shows for is a bunch of new gear. Maybe it's a resort that they want to go visit, um, different bodies of water, so on and so forth. But, well, Steve Jensen. Most people want to come here to see Steve Jensen. I mean, that, that's the bottom line. Right. Well, I was actually thinking they were mostly here to see Jeff Vandermorta or Brian's striking body. One of those two things. I was thinking that's where that went. <laughs> I, maybe I'm just confused. I don't know, Jeff. <laughs> maybe it was Carrie. I mean, Carrie's standing here now, too. She just decided to pop in. That's just the convenient part about this is anybody can pop in. Right? Yeah, anybody can pop in. And I'm pretty sure everybody comes to see me. Yeah, well, they're not coming here to see Brad. We know that. <laughs> All right. So let's, uh, let's move on. Let's talk gear. Let's talk with Steve. We're, the, uh, the theme here that we came up with was underrated bait for this season. Steve, why don't you be the first one up since you're closest to me? You know, let's talk. What, what was underrated, underrated for you this year? Underrated lures. Boy, uh, there's a lot of them out there. There's no doubt. Uh, I can only pick one? Yeah. Just one. You're not allowed to have more than one. No, this got hard. But not really, actually. I had an amazing year on a bait that not a lot of people are throwing. I shouldn't say that. People are using them, but it's still a little bit under the radar. And uh, it's kind of out of the traditional norm of double blades, opposing blades. I actually did my best this year on a single girl from Musky Mayhem Tackle, imagine that. And uh, It was amazing. We had an amazing pattern going for several, several weeks. Uh, went through a lot of baits, um, had a lot of action, caught a lot of nice fish. And uh, it's not a bait that I see a lot of people throwing. I don't see a lot of people throwing single-bladed bucktails much anymore. Um, and it was absolutely on fire for a long time for me this year. All right, well, let's talk about that. Everybody's into flash. There's not a ton of flash on that. It's more marabou. Is, uh, is marabou a thing for you? Marabou has always been a thing for me. Um, I'm from the Hayward area. I actually started catching muskies on the Shumway Flasher, uh, marabou bait. Um, still a bait I use today, even though I fish mostly musky mayhem. Um, but uh, 
it has a little bit less flash. I think it makes a little bit less noise. Um, has a totally different vibration and also reaches a little bit different depth. Um, all those things seem to uh, kind of line up for me and getting some really nice bites. And uh, it was kind of universal. It didn't really matter the lake. Um, I had about, I would say, three, four weeks where it was my primary bait. And actually, some days we had three, three people throwing them. So that tells you how good we were dialed into that pattern. All right, well, let's talk one more thing. Speed. Was speed much of a factor? Speed is always a factor with muskies, and it varies. Um, if you think there's only one way to do it, you're absolutely wrong. Uh, we vary our speed every single day. Um, some days they want it screaming, and some days they want it just slowly rolling in. Some days they want it in the middle. Um, so I often tell my anglers to change up their speed throughout the day. Um, try a few casts fast, try a few casts medium, try a few casts slow. When the fish start showing up and eating the lures, then we know what we're looking for. So I generally am trying to um, do a little variety there, a little variables, and see what's going to be the best for each given day. Um, but in general, fast was better. I want hard, fast rules when it comes to muskies. I don't want any of this variable stuff. I want, this is what I got to do. I want you to know exact amount of cranks you need to have. Come on, Jeff. Here, so, here's the yeah. deal with that. I mean, they're muskies. <laughs> it's kind of like... Don't, uh, don't give me this BS uh -huh. about, you know, they want to uh, let them tell you what they want. Half the days they don't tell me they want anything. Well, it's kind of like being married, okay? <laughs> so you, you kind of got to try to go down that path and try to figure it out, right? Uh, all right. Well, well, let's fly over to Jeff here. Jeff, what, what was underrated for you and your boat this year? Um, I would have to second Steve's on the on the single-bladed bucktails this year, especially when you get those later springs like this and things go through. It was one of them. I won't. I think everybody's in agreement on that. I think <laughs> it was definitely the hot pattern this year for, for the blade side of things, especially for the first several, several weeks for us. Um, I would say one of the things that was really a standout for this year would probably be the regular bulldog. That was one too that really stuck with us this year. I'm just thinking back on a couple, our biggest fish in Northern Wisconsin this year was on a regular bulldog, it was a 51. Uh, we had several other fish that came on that, another 48, another 47, um, mostly in that June time frame. And, but even into, as we approached into the summer peak there, into July, the, they did not make that typical trend, uh, that typical um, change over to the larger baits on the lakes where I normally would see that pattern. By us, it was very much the biggest fish in the system. We're still uh, hammering on that smaller to medium-sized rubber. Uh, mid-sized deuces and stuff too, not that those are a very, you know, not that mid-sized rubber is an un underrated bait, but certainly specifically they wanted the single tail, they wanted the regular bulldog, and there was a good period there that end of June and the first couple weeks of July where that was F our hot bait for sure. I think I think Jeff broke the rules there though. Didn't he mention a couple baits? We I went down we were the single. To get one lure. Exactly. We were going down the single blade route again. <laughs> and then he took a he took a left turn over to to smaller rubber. I don't think that works. That like that that's disqualified. You're out. <laughs> Go back to your booth, Jeff. <laughs> you've been no. dis, you've been dismissed. But he did bring up something. He was talking about smaller size baits. Was that was that part of the rhythm? Yes, the smaller size baits, and that carried through well into when I normally am throwing some large stuff. I've had tremendous days on magnum rubber from opening day onward some years, typically in a year with an early spring, but years like this where we get the later spring and things stay cooler for longer, that smaller size. And, and this was just very, very textbook in that way, but very much that. But again, specifically on the rubber side of things, it was the single bulldog, regular bulldog specifically. The single tail seemed to be the outperforming everything else for that three-week period or so. All right, let's throw it over to Mr. Muscles, Brian Schaefer. Uh, nah, nah, nah. Same question for you, Brian. Well, I'm going to follow with these guys on, on the size, downsize for sure. I'm going with the ripping dog. So, 
he just babe. he just made a U-turn too because he was gonna go single girls because I saw when Jeff mentioned it he kind of threw his hands up in the air like he was super well, mad at us. We can't have three in a row here, so <laughs> downsizing for sure. The ripping dog, I mean, it's so versatile. You know, you can work it shallow, deep, jig it, and it's a perfect size for for bait. You know, and and that would be my my bait of choice right now for would be the ripping dog. Was color a major factor this year? Well, the lakes that I mainly used them on were uh, Cisco based, so we were using Cisco patterns, but we were using perch patterns on, in the weeds too. So. And you can rip them right over the weeds. So when you're talking about ripping, what are you actually talking about, Brian? It's more of a pull. Okay. Rip up, drop with a tight line, almost like jigging walleyes. All right. We, we weren't really jigging them much this, this past year, but more of a ripping over the weeds and ripping through the weeds. So, But that's the bait I'm going with, the okay. ripping dog. Sean, let's go with you. What do you have to say about this? Well, uh, this year I think um, the 10-9 combo was a huge bait for me. Um, but before that, I would say um, I had really good success on the 22 short this year on some really big fish. Um, but I was doing a little twist on it. I put a white grub on the back and we'd be fishing all day, catch a couple. And then the second I would put that bait with the, the grub on the back, a big one would eat right away instantly. I don't know if that was just a trigger, but it worked all summer. Then um, I tried some uh, some deep lakes um, where you would typically use a bigger bait in fall, and I put on that 22 short, and I still caught some monster fish on a tiny bait in fall, which is kind of unheard of, but again, downsizing. They ate it year-round, and uh, I think that grub was just a magic little clicker for me so all right so i guess the key here now would be to not get stuck in a rut regardless of time of season you know i'm looking for hard fast rules all the time that's just the easiest way people want it but for you and a lot of you guys it sounds like even if you were talking typically in fall when you have big baits it, it, it pays to throw something smaller once in a while too. absolutely you know i'd say you know jeff it kind of makes me think off the beaten path you know you and i did that one filming trip quite a while back nobody's ever seen the footage because i suck at editing but you know i, w I was amazed it was october and it was cold and you're throwing topwater baits and you're like oh yeah they'll eat them here and you've got two fish on on topwater baits it, it kind of goes along that same line just because you think that that's not typically what you should be doing that time of year it pays to you know poke around especially if you have multiple anglers in a boat at a time yeah, agreed. And that was one of those trips. It's funny you bring that up. You know, that was one where, you know, I, I said, I guess I could say I'd stumbled into that pattern a couple of years earlier where we just had a, one of those days where it was tough, and, but the fish were holding shallow. It was post turnover, all that stuff. It ended up being one of the biggest fish of the season that we caught. I had a husband and wife that caught on a Dr. Evil, and it was like October 7th, 12th, something like that. And, um, you know, top one in the fall is certainly a, a viable option, but you just don't see many people doing it. And the day we went with you, too, we moved fish on Suix and everything else, but what they were actually eating was that top water that was what they wanted that day it wasn't just like a coincidence for right. sure no it was cold yeah it was cold um he's got the you have the, is that the footage rolling in the booth i think there's it might yeah, be in the booth yeah, a little bit yeah, but it never made it to youtube booth, yep. i happened to see that one is like i recognize the fish from it yep but no it was cold we were bundled up winter clothes winter bibs everything and it was well past turnover turnover and i'd say water temps were maybe mid upper 40s maybe yeah, maybe 50 yeah. no probably I don't know. It was cold. Yeah, oh, yeah, it was probably it was probably mid to upper 40s. I'd yeah, say 46 absolutely. to 48 degree water temps. All right. Well, let's take a little break from our guide panel. Let's bring in Scott Wilkie from the Muscalunge Club of Wisconsin. 
and we brought Scott in because their particular club is represented here at the show, but you guys also do a bunch for Southern Wisconsin Fisheries. So Scott, let's talk a little bit about your club. If people want to get involved in it, you know, what's the best way they can find out more information on your club? And then let's talk about some of the stuff that you guys done in Southern Wisconsin. Great. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, Scott Wilkie, president of Muskie Club of Wisconsin. We have a booth here at the show. Um, we've got some raffles going on. One of them is a 50-50. So if you're here at the show, please come support us. Um, stocking is one of the biggest things that we do. And we were looking at the track record earlier uh, earlier today, Jeff, and we've put almost $100,000 worth of fish in the lakes just in this area in the last 10 years. So something we're really proud of. Last year, we went over 25000 in donations to the area. Um, one of the things I always say about muskie clubs is, you know, we we get we get we we want to buy rods, we want to buy reels, we fall in love with colors on lures, but no fish, no chase, and that you know it's so important that some of these lakes get that get the heavy pressure that they do, that we put back in the resource. We work a lot with the DNR too on uh, trying to establish fish refuges where we know muskies are stocking. And right now we're working on uh, promoting some higher size limits down here too to keep things going, catch and release. Um, we are the oldest and the original Muskie Club in 1953, and we're proud of it, and we're strong, and we keep growing. And I think tonight we, we already picked up five or six new members today. So look for our booth. We're right in the middle of the show. We got a replica, too, of the world record Muskie. So we have a lot to look at and a lot to enjoy, and it's sure fun to bring the kids over to see that fish. All right, so Scott, you got some numbers there, and well, first off, you know, aside from stopping at the club, do you guys have a website people can sign up for your club in there too? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the website's real simple. It's uh, muskie, as in M-U-S-K-I-E-W-I dot O-R-G. So it's muskiewi dot O-R-G. Excellent. All right, so... You know, we've we've done this before, and people might have seen our YouTube channel because I mean, we've it's something we've always believed in since our beginning here is giving back to fisheries, and we've donated to your club multiple times. You know, let's just talk average cost of these fish. I mean, what's the, what does it cost for somebody to stock a muskie? So fall fish, we anticipate the cost of fall fish this year to be around twelve dollars, and spring fish this spring would probably be in the seventeen dollar range because of inflation. But the key is if we can get spring fish, those fish that are a year old that went through a whole winter that are minnow fed those are the survivors the, the survivability of those one-year-old fish versus putting in a fish in september october november they're in a new lake they're going into a cold water period uh where in the spring everything's hatching there's tons of food for those fish so yeah our goal is to get our hands on a whole pound of fish if we can again this year and put them in probably in april and you've been part of that and we really appreciate uh, what TRO has done as far as donations for our organization because it has a big impact on how many fish we can put in the lake. So when you look at those yearling fish costing 16, 17 bucks a piece, you can go through some money pretty quick. And I'm assuming the, the additional cost for these fish is just so they can feed them over the winter because I mean at this point they need to eat live fish. Right. But when you think about, you think about a fall fish costs 11, 12 bucks and a spring fish costs 16, 17 dollars. There's only about a five, six dollar difference and you're minnow feeding those fish from September all the way to April. So instead of being nine inches long, they're 14, 15, 16 inches long and their survivability goes from 
roughly maybe a few percentage points up to like 20, 30 percent. So the survivability is incredible if you can put in those year-old fish. And now I'm going to assume with this one, because of the mild winter that we've had, typically sometimes you guys have cold winters that's kind of rough on these fingerlings. Yeah. The, the, the forecast for this potential spring stocking could be pretty good. Yeah. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if we get a call a month earlier than we normally do. Because as soon as, soon as the ice comes off those ponds, they want to pull those fish and get them into a body of water. So I would anticipate that rather than get the call maybe the first week of April, we'll actually get that call probably in March. If things keep going like they are. Um, you know, we got some colder temps coming, but we just insulated our mediocre ice with six inches of snow. So I don't think the ice is going to get that much better unless it gets really, really cold. Yeah, and as we push now, I mean, we're already at whatever, the 17th, 18th, something like that of February. I don't even know. I lose track of my days. I mean, pretty soon the sun's just going to get higher in the sky, and, and we don't have to worry about those super cold temps anymore. So, I mean, it, the problem should essentially just take care of itself. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we, we anticipate a, a big spring. We're looking forward to it, getting that phone call and getting those fish in the water. We'll be sure to be in touch with you and hope our our partnership continues it's been awesome to work with you and the organization we really really appreciate the podcast uh on a final note we've got a big ice jamboree next weekend over on uh, pewaukee lake to raise money for stocking that's uh, all day event and if we don't have good ice uh, we still do meat raffles and all kinds of things indoors so we still raise money for stocking and then the following week is our big banquet. So those of you listening that want to reach out to us and possibly donate or participate, those are a couple big activities coming up. Perfect. All right. Well, that's the Muscalunch Club of Wisconsin. We appreciate you coming out and talking to us on this podcast. We tried to you know, randomly wrap up, uh, round up some people. In fact, a couple more people have joined in. I don't know, um, Brad, should we, uh, you know, change topics onto some of our guides that have been here? Or do we want to, like, pull in, like, Austin and ask him about an underrated bait? Actually, uh, yeah, we got some new guides that just kind of walked up here. We've uh, we've actually got a resort owner over here with Agency Bay. We've got Jeff Schulte from Bomb Squad. We got a bunch of different things to talk about. So, switch it up. Let's get after it. All right. Well, what is what is the topic? Anybody got something? Somebody want to come up with something? Usually, Brad and I have to have this stuff made up in advance, and you know, we're kind of on the spot here, so we don't really get this uh, the luxury of. Uh, of you know coming up with a topic steve you got something I, I do. actually you know we just talked a little bit about uh what our kind of underrated patterns for the last year were and uh, sean Jof joseph and matt uh, mentioned that he adds grub tails to his uh, crankbaits um, grub tails are kind of a cool little trick that a lot of guys in in musky fishing know about and use um in fact my single girl pattern probably wouldn't have been as good without the grub tails. Uh, I add grub tails to a lot of things. Uh, it's something that me and my brother have done 25 years. Um, and there's times, especially in tournaments, um, other situations where there's lots of anglers present, where making your bait look slightly different or feel slightly different uh, can make a huge difference. So I'm thinking maybe we ask these guys, what other modifications do you do uh, to make your baits produce. I know I talked to Jeff Van Ramore a little bit earlier. He was talking about some weighting situations. Another thing that I do a lot, adding extra weight, and not just to jerk baits or crank baits, but often to bladed baits. Um, so there's a lot of different ways you can modify your lures to make them outproduce. Um, maybe we see what these guys have to say about that. All right, well, Chase, I know we've talked briefly on a podcast with you with mo modifications. 
Let's let's hear about your modification that you'd like to do to baits. Yeah, Jeff. I mean, a lot of people know I already do all the weighting on pretty much everything. I've weighted anything from crankbait all the way up to rubber, jerk baits, and everything. But something I do do a lot. Um, I don't talk about as much as putting like spinner bait arms on baits. Um, literally sticking them on the front. That's been done a hundred times. That works great. But one thing that I do do a lot, like with the bulldog, especially, is I like putting the spinner bait. Uh, spinnerbait arm in the back end of the bulldog under the tail and that gives it just a little bit more of a different uh, look to it almost and when you have the blade on the front of the bait and above the bait it makes the bait want to rise up so when you stick the blade on the bottom of the bait in the back of the bait it makes it want to dive deeper so when you're wanting to deep that fish that little bit deeper water while using the blade, I recommend putting the blade on the bottom of the bait and in the back of the bait, so it keeps the head down. But you can go to Austin here and see if he's got anything. I don't have much beyond the fact that uh, Jeff looks pretty darn good in those headphones, honestly. I, I, I can't get that picture out of my head for the rest of the podcast. I'm just going to imagine you DJing. But uh, no, Chase nailed it with the spinnerbait arms. I'm a big spinnerbait guy. Uh, adding those with with swim baits after dark but one thing i will say is i know uh i know you guys have probably seen it on mayhem sound thousand cast between chase and brad adding the uh chaos weight on the bottom of a, a dying dog or uh any of the the rubber baits but one thing that i add on any of the hard bottom hard bodied baits with adding weight i'll add an uh add an egg egg sinker so that way on every pull the uh the weight tends to clank against the body itself it adds a noise element to it and instead of just adding the weight in a solid um, really fit form to a bait to add weight it adds the extra noise factor and especially when you get to after dark uh, slow pulling any type of thing it adds just adds extra attractment adds extra noise in the environment so you like the Princess Leia look? Is that what you say with the headphones? It's pretty I know, sweet. I know. We got to get uh, Chase's wig on you, and you'd look pretty attractive <laughs> from the backside. Wow. Thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. So, hey, Jeff, we got you here, and you're a bait builder yourself. Before we switch over to, to JVR, let's talk about modifications that you do. You got anything to offer up there? So, I mean, I'll kind of talk a little bit about topwater. Um, you know, on any prop bait, adding three, four split rings to drop that hook back to get some click. That's always been successful. The thing I like to do with weight is, if you get calm water, you can add a lot more weight than you'd think to some of these topwater baits and really sink them low in the water so they just make a bigger wake. Um, it's harder to do in waves, but we throw the same bait every day, day in and day out. And you can take that same bait and just tweak it at a half ounce and it will run very differently. The plop will be different on a prop bait. The plop will definitely be different on a flap tail. You add a half ounce of weight in the rear end of a flap and it's gonna, it'll change that, that lure, how it rides through the water, the sound it makes. Um, the, the challenge with adding weights in some of those things is adding weights tends to be a little bit more destructive to baits. Uh, it hits the water that much harder. So um, one thing that I encourage people to do when they're fishing, when they've got a really heavy style of bait is be sure to thumb that spool, slow it down before it smashes into the water because you will just deteriorate your baits over time. A lot of my stuff, I'd run really close to kind of the upper weight limit. Um, all my flap tails, the C4s, the 65s, I could only add about five or 10 grams more to a C4 and then the operation changes, but I like how deep it sits and how much plowing it, it adds. Um, the flip side to that would be the old Pose jackpot. I mean, those things were the lightest bait that I could think of and they just swam different, you know, just 
it's it just creates um, a different look for for those baits. So weight is a big one. You know, we're, we're working on a project right now. Actually, it's one of Chase's ideas um, for some additional tweaks and blades to a flap to get the focus to be on a different part of the bait. We have a lot of fish bite and they get hit by the uh, spreader bars. And that's fine and they get hooked, but they're biting the tail, they're not biting the bait. We're trying to think of a way to move more of that focus farther up the head so that we don't get um, as many short strikes. And as you'll see in one of the upcoming Mayhem's 10,000 cast episodes, we don't lose as many fish. I mean, we had a stretch where we could not get hooks into a fish uh, for more than five or 10 seconds. and they were just hitting the blade and hitting the back of the flaps. We're trying to get that to be uh, moved up forward. So how you position blades on a bait, and I think the detonator is a perfect example of that. It's two blades on, on a marabou or on a flashaboo skirt, but they're in a different position. It creates a different look to these fish as well. So taking the same components, putting them in a different spot, that works as well. All right, JVR, let's, uh, let's hear your part. Well, we're kind of on uh, the weighting modifications and stuff, and I've got a real quick one for you that uh, we can, it might not be necessarily one that changes how your bait runs, but it'll save you some money. Uh, we were on the topic of the bulldog earlier. On the bulldogs on the heavy heads, putting shrink tube over that wire, because if you add weight to a bait, a lot of times you do get that destruction on there, like you said, and it's one of those things where it'll cut up the front of it. And as much as I've, it seems like a common sense thing, I've never really seen anybody else do that. It's one of those things, and put a little bit of shrink tube on there, put a little heat on it, and it'll stop it from digging in, and it also keeps it from sliding around on that rubber. The friction from the shrink tube, that rubber-coated shrink tube, stops it from moving on the bait as well, so it keeps it running nice and true. It won't slide to the side as it wears and cuts into the rubber. Yeah, to, to add to that, I, I know a lot of different people that, uh, with any of their Flashaboo bladed baits, a lot of times that top hook will tangle up Flashaboo. I've seen guys take that, that shrink tube and slide it down to the bottom of the hook, yep. and they're just melting it right to the hook, and that will keep that Flashaboo from tangling. And uh, one trick from the old, from Kramer on that one was putting the dab of super glue on the back. I'd say I picked that up from him too, a little dab of Gorilla Glue in the back to fill in that. Yep. And that works excellent for keeping it from tangling. Get better hookup percentages, your hook stays free. Absolutely. You know, Austin, I do have to say, you were giving me a hard time about my look here. I mean, Jeff was supposed to go to Great Clips today, and he didn't go there. <laughs> and he's bringing back the Babe Winkleman look, so I don't know why you're not giving him a little bit of a hard time. Oh boy, we don't need to do that. All right, you know what? You know one, Brad. One thing we don't talk a lot about on the podcast is rods. All right, picking out a rod, selecting a rod. You know, obviously, there's multiple rods out there. There, it's for a reason. Let's ask these guys here if they could only pick out one rod that they had to throw for the majority of their baits. Obviously, if we're throwing pounders, you know, we're going to beef things up a little bit. But I think a lot of people have, you know. They don't know. They don't know what gear to buy necessarily. You're new to musky fishing. You know what, what's going to be one of the better all-around rods for each one of you. And you know we got uh, Phil from Agency Bay. You know we'll let him jump in on this one too. So I mean this shouldn't be a super long conversation. But what? Why are you looking at me like I said something wrong? That's Bob from Agency. Bay. Sorry. Why would I call him Phil? I'm used to. Oh, that's right. Phil's the guide that works out of Agency <laughs> Bay or works with him a lot. Yeah. Sorry. My bad. It happens. <laughs> This is why we don't do stuff live. I normally have notes for all this stuff. <laughs> Anyways, all right, Mr. Jensen, we don't necessarily need to mention brand, but we will in this instance because I know you're a St. Croix guy, so I'm sure you're going to go down that road. You know, what's, what, what type of rod are you going to say is, like, if you're Joe Average customer and you only want to have one rod, what's one going to be? Oh, such a hard question, Jeff, such a hard question. But uh, for me, personally, um, I would put a St. Croix Big Nasty in my hand. Um, it's the rod I probably use 85 to 90% of the time. 
Um, they came out with a new grass technology, which is a pretty cool real seat. They've also upgraded all of their Legend Tournament series this year. Um, lighter, stronger, faster, so many cool things going on there. Um, so that would be my choice. Um, I do fish several different models of that mo of the St. Croix rods, but uh, the St. Croix Legend Tournament um, and the Big Nasty would be my go-to rod most of the time. All right, so since Steve went first, it looks like by the look on Chase's face, like Steve just stole your answer again. I think I think these guys are just cheating off each other. They don't know what the heck to say, so they're just like, whatever Steve said, I'm going to agree with. Let's just go on that route. Chase, what's up with you? Well, Jeff, a rod that I started using probably two years ago, um, I'm really proud to be working with them, is uh, Shakespeare Ugly Sticks. Um, I like the 6.8, the 6.8 medium fast, uh, really, really whippy tip. Um, preferably a spinning rod. No, uh, probably my favorite rod that I've had. Um, I've always used kind of a wide array of different brands. And I've always really loved St. Croix. Every, every, ever since the beginning, I've loved St. Croix. But a rod that I've really grew on me in the past two years is, uh, is a stretch dog, is what they make. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an older rod. It's a 10-footer. I don't believe they're still available, but that is one of my favorite rods right now. Uh, Second-hand rod, just because they don't make that one, is probably the Blue Ox that they carry now. But I really like that rod. You might be from the south, you might be quick, but you stole my ugly stick. That was that was all me. And that was what I was going to go with, the 8.6 ugly stick. No, I mean, really, other than brand-oriented, for anybody that's getting into the industry, really, or just starting out, I would say anything in, in the heavy to extra heavy gets gets away with basically everything. I would say, personally, I use anything about 9.96 extra heavy, and, and that gets the job done for about everything. Um, Chase, you know, at my lodge every year we do a contest for who can catch the biggest fish on a princess pole. So if you're up on leech this summer, I think uh, your name might be on a plaque and there's extra bonus points if you happen to catch it on a savage duck lure. So we got that for you. Um, I have all chaos assault sticks in my boat, 2020, nine and a half foot SWAT. I mean, to me, you know, it just seems like I get a lot of beginning anglers in my boat or beginning musky fishermen. And like, you know, I want to put something that's not like overly powering for them, but big enough to where they can let the rod do the work for them. And, um, you know, I just, to me, that's just a great all around rod. Um, Jeff Schulte, I would say the Big Nasty is probably one of my favorites. I don't think people understand when they grab a rod how much work they're actually putting into it when they have a, a lower powered rod, like a medium heavy or a heavy. So if I had to just pick one, an extra heavy would be the way to go. You can throw anything with it. It's a lot less work. Um, you know, I think it's easy when you're just starting out to kind of look on the smaller side, whether it's price driven, well, I'm just gonna get an eight footer and whatever, um, just go for the extra length. Um, you won't regret it. And honestly, start with a heavier action and work back if you become that detailed into it, but extra heavy, um, nine, nine and a half or 10 now is a lot more readily available. So that'd be kind of the direction I go. The other thing for me that I really struggle with is, um, I got to fish with the grass for the first time this fall. And at first I really struggled with it because it was a totally different real seat than what I was used to. Um, once I got used to it, I loved it, but I'm the type of guy that when I like something, I switch everything over to it. So there's always consistency. There's no, um, you know, there's no grab one rod and it's different than the other. All my, my, um, the butts of my rods all extend to the, to be the same length and whatever. So it's just 
away I'm kind of weird, but that's how I roll. Yeah, I guess if I had to pick one one rod for anybody to start off with, it would be like if you have no musky rods, you're just getting into the sport, you don't really know where you're starting, I'd say an eight foot extra heavy would be probably about the middle of the road. Eight foot six extra heavy if you're a little taller. Those rods will do everything. Uh, the only reason I would shy away from something like in that nine foot range would be because if you do want to run stuff like jerk baits or suics or glide baits, you're getting a little long, especially if you're not fishing out of a really high fiberglass boat, you don't really get, you're gonna be slapping the water, right? You're not gonna be able to put the action into that bait that you want. Uh, and that's gonna be, you know, if you're an average guy, if you don't own any musky rods, you're just getting into it, odds are good that you're probably not fishing out of a 622 Ranger or something that's really high off the water. So eight foot or eight foot six extra heavy will do the job of 99%. If you could only get two rods, I'd go with a 7.6 extra heavy for all your jerk baits, glide baits, all that stuff, and then get an 8 foot 6 extra heavy, regardless of brand. But that, those two will cover everything that you need to do. You can throw big rubber and then you can get the jerk bait stuff in there as well as your top water and everything else. I think one of the pieces and the components to the, hey, the rod length, mics. I got two mics, you're right. <laughs> two um, but one of the things that maybe they didn't mention is when you go into a figure eight, and when you're going into a figure eight, a little stiffer rod, like your extra heavies that they're talking about, you're not fighting that rod as well as the bait when you go into a figure eight. So, you know, that's something to think about, and it's definitely a consideration when you're buying a rod. All right, we roped in another guide over here, Kevin Pischke, Lane the Line Guide Service. Kevin, you're late to the party. I mean, you're late to most parties. <laughs> but, but anyways. Late for what? Late for not being pregnant. <laughs> anyways. All right. So we're talking rods on this one. If you know, if you had to recommend a rod for a beginning musky angler, what rod are you going to recommend? I'm going to go eight six heavy. A uh, little more options for you can throw a little smaller stuff because I hate having new people throwing big baits and wearing them out right away and breaking their heart and burning them out. So eight six heavy, they can throw you know like a rabbit girl, a little smaller single, you know bucktail, you know twitch seven inch crankbait, and they can still throw a regular size bulldog or double nines with it. So yeah, eight six heavy. All right, and since you were also late, we we talked about underrated baits this year, and I know you're probably one of the only guys around here that actually does a lot of trolling. What would be an underrated bait for trolling for you this year? Underrated bait? Well, I'm going to go with just the classic slammer, the 7-inch slammer or the new 6-inch slammer. It's an affordable, under $20 crankbait. You know, I can put people on 50-inch fish trolling $17 baits that last for years, you know, catch a lot of fish on them. So that's going to be my underrated bait for sure. All right. I think one thing we can, or maybe we can agree on, I don't know. It seems like uh, I listen to all you guys talk, and, and for the most part, a lot of you wanted to go nine, eight, six, nine, nine, six rods. You know, when you guys have guides that, that are, got, you know, clients that jump in your boat, it seems like the ones I talked to at the show, they don't want to go much over eight foot. They're, they're afraid of that. Is that the general consensus you'd see from most people? Is they're still a little hesitant to go to the eight, six, nine foot rods? Yeah, in my boat, I would say that 8.6 is about as long as I give to a customer. Um, now, again, I fish out of a Lund, Alaska, and my boat's a little lower. Um, the, the, you, there really is something to be said for fishing out of a higher beam boat. It depends on the size of your boat because if you're, in a, and I'm tall, I'm 6.4. I'm a pretty tall guy, so even even being tall, though, I still want a shorter rod for the jerk baits. But the the length, anything over that 9-foot mark, is it can be hard if you're fishing in a boat similar to my style. Okay, so that's, that's where I go. And it's a lot. It does wear them out more. More rod is more... 
more work in a lot of cases. It does have its advantages, easier on the figure eights and all that, but I would say 8.6 is about as big as I typically give it to a customer. Um, maybe the one exception is when we're on Green Bay, I will lean towards the nine footers just because typically there we are chasing a little bit longer fish and there's a lot of boat side stuff, a lot more than we have in Northern Wisconsin, certainly. And for fish of that size, it does make it a lot easier for those people to make those longer figure eights. But I also have a, usually a higher caliber of angler in my boat. They're not usually first time muskie fishermen. They're people that have been out and know the game. So there's that caveat there. You know, the, the, the rod length thing, I think, is one of those situations that I know talking with Brad, talking with any of these guys that have used the, the St. Croix grasp, when you don't know necessarily, or you're a new angler or somebody that just hasn't experienced like a new length of a rod or a new, new product necessarily, and especially in the musky industry, I see it a lot, where if you haven't experienced it for yourself, it's tough to convince yourself to go ahead and get that longer rod, that new, that new product. So when guys come and you're saying that uh, they seem to lean towards the eight footer or not much longer, when I give them a longer rod personally in my boat, and, and as Jeff mentioned, I do have a, a Triton, a um, little bit bigger, a little bit higher off the water. Um, the nine footer after handing it to guys or a nine six after handing it to guys for you know a half hour to an hour, they, they get used to it and they seem to, they seem to just settle into, wow, this is a lot easier to cast, wow, it's a lot easier to do this, as opposed to not using it prior and being scared by the length. So it's, it's one of those things that once they get to use it, once they get to see it in their hands and experience it for the first time, they, they seem to settle in and like the longer rods as opposed to walking up and buying one out of the blue. All right, well, we need one more topic, and Brian, who makes Musky Innovations Bulldogs, he just jumped in. Brian, you need to come up with the next topic, because since you were standing around, we got to put you to work. We don't like guys just standing around. So Next topic. Yep, what's the next topic? Uh, let's see. And we're not talking about where we're going for dinner tonight. Right. Uh, uh, this isn't well, working well. Anybody want to help him out? <laughs> how about How about the longevity of a rubber bait? how much use can you actually get out of one they're they're pretty pricey right because they're they take a lot of stuff that goes into it to make them um, but you can fix them up you can keep those things living for a long time if you doctor them so uh, i i can't say that you have to have you know a rubber bait but if you do it it's definitely an advantage definitely and just a little care, you know, tweak them up, you can fix them. It's definitely worth it. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. I know if you watched the latest Keys Outdoors, you saw Mr. Jensen over here, Frankenstein and a Bulldog back together with his rubber tail stuff. You know, Steve, why don't you talk a little bit about how you fix them? And then I'm, I'm imagining we're not going to have 14 different answers with how to fix <laughs> rubber baits. <laughs> so maybe we got to go with one more topic. So. Um, Phil Bob, why don't you talk about what you what you why don't you think about what's the next topic? <laughs> Phil Bob, figure that out, would you, buddy? Uh, yes, fixing rubber baits is absolutely mandatory. Um, I am a guy who throws a ton of rubber. I throw a ton of bulldogs. They get eaten. They get bit. They get their tails ripped off. They get their heads destroyed. Um, all things that are relatively fixable if you have the proper tools in your boat and a little bit of knowledge. Um, I generally carry a torch. I also carry a windproof lighter. And uh, both of those things are generally all I need to fix just about any problem that I have. 
Um, the key is fixing the problem when you see it and not fishing past. Um, so if you have cuts in the head, you need to fix those. If the tail has a little rip, you need to fix that. Um, if the tail gets zipped off, it is very easy to add an extra tail to it. In fact, I just use a Magamo grub or any of the trailers that you can find in the market today can be easily melted to the end of that tail. And I actually do that sometimes to actually create a little bit longer tail and also create a different vibration. Two things that can be uh, achieved by, by doing that. Um, but being able to melt rubber fast in the boat is key. Um, it's hard to have two, three, four of every hot color. Um, when you're guiding and you have a hot bait going, everybody in the boat wants it, right? Um, so it's a matter of fixing baits and keeping them fishing. Um, I have been fixing rubber baits since the very beginning. And uh, generally hot is what I use to do it. Um, there is some glues that some guys use. Um, but generally heat's all I need. And uh, by far it's, it's the fastest and easiest way to fix rubber in the boat. On the subject of fishing, fixing rubber, um, not necessarily for fixing the rubber baits, so you can use it for attaching tails and stuff like that and repairing rubber. Um, a glue, a super glue with an accelerator product for attaching stuff for your rubber tails for stuff like phantoms or SRJs or any of that stuff, also crucial to have in the boat. Uh, be careful when you spray it. Uh, the, the stuff I use is a hog seeker glue kit. Uh, Team Rhino, I believe, still carries them, correct? Okay, they still carry them through Team Rhino. You'll get one spray bottle and you'll get one bottle of super glue. You'll spray a little bit on the on the rubber part, put a dab or put a dab of glue on the rubber part, put a little spray on the on the on it as well, and then you'll put it together with the or you dab of glue on each, spray it and put it all together. It'll cure in like three seconds. Um, easy Jensen. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, anyway, on, the, on, the, on that topic, though, that is one thing to have. Uh, trying to hold it there with just super glue, that accelerator's key, the hog seeker glue kit from TRO, it'll change your life on that. One word of caution, be very careful you don't get it on your fingers. I've got one SRJ with my fingerprints from my thumb and pointer finger melted into it. Um, nice little chemical burn on that one. Learn my lesson on that. Don't do that. Make sure you don't get it on your seats and all that stuff. It's just best to, a little bit goes a long way, but that stuff will change your, change your life when it comes to repairing baits. Kind of a funny one on repairing baits. Uh, several years ago up on Lake of the Woods, had a gentleman with me who guides saltwater, Carolinas and Florida. They throw a lot of big rubber swim baits out there. And lunchtime, I duck down below the council because it was windy. Get out my knife, my torch, start heating it up. And the look on this guy's face was like, he literally thought I was either going to cut him with a hot knife or start melting, you know, some illicit drug. And then the, the look, yeah, the look on his face when he started watching me melt my bulldogs back together. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm melting these back together. That works? I'm like, yeah, why? He goes, I throw away dozens of swim baits a week. And it was just like, wow. So obviously we're a little smarter in the Midwest than some of them, you know, southern saltwater guys. But he was taking that, he was taking that back with them. But just the look on his face was priceless when I pulled out the knife and started heating it up with the torch. All right, so Bob from Agency Bay, did you come up with the uh, the next topic? And I, I think, I mean, Carrie really hasn't talked much, so I kind of wonder if maybe Carrie shouldn't have to be the first one to answer. Her face just turned a little bit red. So uh, I did think of a topic that I hope goes over well, and I kind of tried to think, you know, I'm in a unique position that I own a lodge, and I get to see customers that are fishing on their own come in day in and day out. Um, I also do guides, so I have customers in my boat like, like all of you. But I work with a lot of guides on the lake where I may be booked or I, or I may have resort responsibilities. So I'm booking the customer that's staying at my lodge and then they're fishing with somebody that I know is a very good guide on Leech Lake. Um, and so to me, it's just an interesting perspective to get to talk to that customer throughout the week, right? Um, and one thing that 
to me is a major miss among musky anglers that are fishing on their own is the order of which they throw baits, right? So like we were talking about rubber and to me there's a major, depending on kind of what the fish are doing, there's a major uh, component to fishing rubber is like the order of baits being thrown. Or when you were talking about noise with top water, to me that always has to be paired with, well, when are blades going through the water and kind of getting that fish fired up before it smokes that top water, right? So that would be, I guess, my topic or my question for, for the guides in the group is um, if you could give a tip on how you order, you know, or when you see the order of which you're making sure clients go, Steve, you mentioned everybody wants the hot bait. Well, I know sometimes I'll have a globe going out the bow and that globe is not going to get hit, but that bucktail going behind it is going to get smoked, right? And so um, if you all have any tips that you would give on an order of bait or when you see order in the boat, because to me, seeing customers come through my lodge, not necessarily in my boat and getting to talk to them all the time, like to me, that's the major miss is two guys come up and they spend the week in my lodge. Everybody wants to catch a muskie. But if you start thinking about how do I work as a team, you end up doubling and tripling the amount of muskies that end up in the boat. And a lot of what I would call maybe amateur amateur anglers or anglers on their own, anglers who aren't getting a chance to fish with a guide, that to me would be like the big ones where I kind of want to raise my hand and say, fish for each other. Think about like how you guys are teaming up on the fish and you might just find a lot more in the bag. Well, not only like order, but I also think about speed. You know, like I've had guys that are running the boat and they got it on eight because they're throwing a bucktail, but the other guy in the front's throwing a jerk bait. It doesn't really work out so well for the guy in the jerk bait. Is even if he's coming from the back of the boat, the jerk bait's always coming from the back side. So it's definitely something you need to think about. Like you said, in some instances, it's not only necessarily like order of where, where they're being thrown in the boat, but it's also speed of you know if everybody's throwing bucktails, you can cover speed really quick. You know, put your trolling motor on eight and start flying if you want to do that. But if everybody's not throwing bucktails, it doesn't always work out, and you're you're kind of screwing the guy over in the back of the boat too. This is not a good question for me. <laughs> <laughs> Purely because when I pick out a bait to throw, you can ask Brad because he'll go throw this one and I'm like, I don't want to throw that one. So I, I literally go off what my gut tells me to throw that day. Okay. And he'll tell me, and which, yeah, which Chase just chimed in and said is typically a pink something, bucktail. Typically. I mean, and some of that I did just for Chase's benefit because he didn't believe muskies ate pink and they do often. Um... But yeah, I, I really go off of what what grabs me that day. Sometimes it's not pink, but most often it is. <laughs> All right, well, and uh, you know, Brad, Jeff, which one's gonna grab the microphone first? Or are we go, okay, Brad, or we'll, we'll go the other way. We'll go to Steve first. Uh, that was honestly awesome uh, topic, Bob. Uh, something that I consider every single day. Um, I do have a game plan that I follow. Um, obviously, hot bites and patterns are going to dictate that. But if I'm starting on a cold day where I don't know what the fish are doing, or I'm on a new lake, or I haven't been recently, um, I have a real simple rule. First bait out of the boat is fast and straight. Second bait out of the boat is straight, but a little bit slower. And the third bait out of the boat is always going to be a start and stop. Um, if I can figure out what the pattern is with those three baits, and it usually doesn't take long, then we'll mold what we're throwing. Uh, if the fast is going good, then we're throwing in a couple more fast baits. If the slow is better, then we're going to mix up the slow stuff. And a lot of times you'll find out that that start and stop is the trigger for the day. 
Um, so really, we, we, we try to start each day with that, but if I've been fishing for numerous days in a row and I have a hot pattern, we may have two anglers up front going hot and fast. We may have two anglers up front going slow. Um, so I kind of let the fish dictate that to a certain extent. But simple rule, first one out, fast. Second one, slow. Generally straight retrieve. Third bait in, I almost always have three people in the boat. Start and stopping. Uh, can be rubber, can be a jerk bait, can be anything. Can actually be a blade bait. Um, but I def definitely change the cadence. So that's my general rule. Yeah, you know, Mine's a little bit different as far as I used to do a lot, exactly what, what Steve was saying, but anymore um, on my home water when I'm guiding, I'm really starting to notice that 80% of my fish are always caught by the guy in the front of the boat. And I truly believe that that is because those fish, um, and, and I see it a lot too as far as follow-ups. If that fish sees a bait and it follows that bait, but it's not the bait that it wants to eat on that day, uh, it goes away and it will never come back and see a, uh, it will never come back after a bait again that same day so i and it, it's hard to tell like a, a listener this but like when i'm on the water all the time and i know okay these things right now they are absolutely challenging uh, a dying dog or a mojo just anything like that that guy in the front of the boat is throwing what i know is going to catch fish whether he's going too slow and the guy in the back of the boat's casting ahead of him type of thing like i, I don't care i want the guy in the front of the boat throwing the bait that i know they're going to eat because i want that to be the first bait goes through that fish's face a day um that way they don't get screwed up for the rest of the day um so but the the speed thing is something i used to do but now that's more so what i'm doing now but i think jeff's got something to say now big surprise jeff needs to talk now oh, i thought you were going oh we're going in a circle oh my bad guys i'm a dumb redneck from west virginia oh come on chase give yourself more credit than that no, I mean, I think uh, actually it was kind of it was great that Chase mentioned that because I'm I'm more along the lines of Steve. But uh, when it comes to to the order of baits, for sure, there's always the classic one one fast, one medium, one slow, one high, one medium, one low. And I think that for me, um, day to day, that would be something that I would put into play if I'm really trying to figure out the pattern. Steve kind of mentioned it. Your first day on a new lake. Um, things are really changing and you're trying to dial things in. I think that's a great way to just cover all bases. Um, as a guide, I would say that the majority of guides that are in this circle and, and fish muskies, most of us are throwing that, that start, stop, pull, pause, a um, little bit uh, just slower bait that gets down deeper and it's not exactly the bait that we think that's going to get bit or is the, uh, the one-two punch up front but it's, it's keeping them honest. Uh, day to day, obviously, it always changes. I, I kind of wish that Seifert was here for this, because I think, what, him with a flap tail in front's the wrong one, or? It, yep, yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely, uh, and that actually kind of plays into what Chase said with, with burning a fish, uh, if it's not the right bait up front. But yeah, day to day, new body of water, new pattern, uh, dialing things in, I'm keeping one fast, one high, uh, one medium, one slow in the back. But like you said, uh, like Steve mentioned, Every day, kind of paying attention to the details, which bait's getting the, getting the looks, which one's getting the bites, and moving it, moving it up in the, in the order is kind of the way to get things rolling. Yeah, I think everybody there had pretty much a great strategy, whether it be the fast, medium, slow, and then the hot bait in the front. I think those are all excellent. I'd go just a little bit different direction in terms of, uh, of not necessarily how you're doing it, but playing to the strengths of each angler that you have in the boat. As a guide, I consistently see people 
on a daily basis, you know, you have, usually have three people in the boat casting. I'm running the boat most days. And some days it's only two, but usually I have three people casting. And you'll find over the course of a very short period of time, and if you guys are buddies that are out fishing and trying to work as a team, you're going to already know this. But you're going to find that one person will work a certain kind of bait better than another. It might be something along the lines of this guy's just really good in the figure eight with a bucktail. He pays more attention than the guy who, you know, maybe you're better rubber fisherman or something like that. And even when you get into that same category of fishing or, or fishing bait like a rubber bait, there's just guys that have a better rip for medusas and there's guys that throw dogs better, you know, or, or guys that throw toads better for that matter, something with a little bit more hang time. Um, people that are not maybe as well versed in, in all those three kinds of baits and have thrown all three kinds of baits in many different situations, you may think that's all the same bait, but they're very much not. Um, you know, those all are different baits. They're made for different things and they do different things. And in the hands of the right person, you'll see that work. Um, so if you really see a guy that's getting bit on something and you, even if it's something that I'll consistently also see people doing something a little bit off where like, can you do it a little bit more like this? And they kind of go back to doing their thing. And after I tell them once or twice, I'm not going to mess with them. I'll just let them keep doing their thing. And a lot of times they're not a lot of times, but sometimes they'll get bit. And that's something too, where you can kind of put it up, but play to the strength. If you got a guy who's really good on the bucktail, stick with that. Let him throw it. Don't be greedy just because it's a rubber bite doesn't mean you need to not throw the rubber and you really want to still go through because all those fish that you're presenting to if you can present to them methodically you're gonna have a much better chance at getting them and if everybody's playing to the strength it's a better chance to make it to the bag boy Jeff nailed a nailed a, a really great point there and it's something that I do almost every day and I don't even really think about it um, when you've guided as long as I have almost 25 years now um, a lot of my clients are repeaters and I absolutely know what they're good at I know what their strengths are. When they get in the boat, I know this guy can do this. I know this guy can do that. And I will often, almost every day, feed that because I know that's where they're strong. That's where they're confident. They know how to work those lures. And in fact, that single girl bite that I told you about happened by accident. I had an older fellow who loved fishing with him. He hates throwing big stuff, hates throwing double blades, won't do it. I said, here we go. The blade bite's been good. Let's put a single girl on you. We'll get that rolling. You'll have a good time. He's one of those guys. He really doesn't care if he catches them or not. He's just out there to have fun and enjoy the experience. All of a sudden, he just starts pounding them one after another after another. I'm like, hmm, we're onto something here. Now, within a week, I had every single person in the boat throwing that single-bladed bucktail, and we literally stumbled onto that because I fed my client the lure that I felt that he could work the best, work the most efficiently, and keep wet longest. Um, a lot of times, keeping people fishing is the key to catching muskies. You got to be happy. You got to got to keep those baits in the water. And if you're fishing with something that you don't enjoy to fish with, or something that you don't have confidence in, you are not going to do it nearly as well as if you're fishing with a confidence lure and fishing it as much as you possibly can. So that would be my tip. All right, now I'm going to change it up for you because I'm going to pigeonhole you because you're the, you're a trolling guy. But that means you're not really just a trolling guy, but everybody else talked about casting. Now I want to talk to you. You can't have some baits going slow and some baits going fast. What's your process when you're trolling? How often are you changing speeds there? You know, is it something you'll roll for two hours before you change speed? Are you changing speeds every 10 minutes? What's your process on that? Usually about every 30 minutes. But one thing you can do without having to change your speed is as long as traffic allows and structure is like run a serpentine or a chicane, if you want to call it that, if you're in a race and where you're doing some S-turns. By that, you're speeding up baits on one side of the boat as they're swinging behind and the other side is falling out going slower. And if you start getting a rip, hit, or fish on the fast side or the slow side, that's a real quick indicator that fish are going 
going fast or fish are going slow and you didn't have to change anything other than doing just some little S's as you're going through the water. But otherwise, I'll jump up and down. I just don't keep going faster, 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 slower, slower, slower. I'll pick my speed, I'll jump up a couple tenths, and then I'll jump down a couple tenths where I was originally, and I'll keep going up and down, up and down to try and figure out what speed they want. But doing that, you know, like you're going through a set of cones, you know, in driver's ed class, learning how to do that is a great way to do that without actually changing the speed of your boat. You know, one of the things there too, Kevin, is uh, I'm guessing that you're putting those baits in different uh, water columns as well. And so when you're trolling, it's not always a speed game necessarily, and it can be on the right day, but but trying to find the right water column with that bait riding um, is definitely going to be uh, putting more fish into the, light, or into the boat as well. Yeah, and then one thing too, you do that by making those turns and throwing those baits that are pulling behind you, a lot of times they blow out. And as they catch is when they'll trigger fish that, you know, that bait walks out, grabs, and next thing you know, you know, you got drag ripping off. So by changing that action in the lure and literally making them foul and catch themselves is enough to trigger a bite too. Erratic can be the key. You got it, man. All right, we can't both turn the mics off at the same time, Brad. It doesn't work. <laughs> so I, I guess before we, well, before we got out of here, uh, Brad, you want to talk a little bit about something they got going on at Agency Bay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Bob's here with us. Um, he, he's kind of added to this whole thing. But uh, one of the things that I definitely wanted to bring up was Agency Bay on Leech Lake. He is doing a musky school. Um, and why don't you just give us a little idea of what that looks like, Bob, and if people are interested, how they get a hold of you. Yeah, I know. I really appreciate that, guys. Um, and by the way, I think fantastic idea running the podcast at the show. Um, you know, to go back to that last question and answer deal real quick, um, I thought fantastic answers from the guides. And if I was a listener at home and I heard that, playing to the strengths of who's in the boat and fishing, fishing, you know, the baits that you're more comfortable with, I think is going to produce more fish than, than anything else and trying to force the issue. Um, but Brad, I appreciate that uh, to answer your question. Yeah, we do one week every year where we try to, you know, load our lodge full of musky anglers. We try to pick a week that we think is going to be very good fishing. You know, it's kind of hard to do all the time, right? But, you know, in Minnesota, I think this year is it's the last week of August on Leech Lake. Um, you can find it at, at uh, minnesotamuskyschool.com or agencybaylodge.com. Um, the format is, is super simple. Bring a bunch of musky anglers in. Um, we feed them. They have lodging. They get uh, interaction with guides every single day. Uh, they get at least one guide trip. We do prizes. Um, we give away guide trips, so there's always a chance that you get more than one guide trip while you're there. But the, the number one thing that I would hit home about with it is really the camaraderie of, you know, we cap it at 24 anglers, and the idea is there's 24 anglers working together so that everybody has the best shot at catching fish. Um, you know, we put a group text together, and it's probably my favorite part of the week. We put a group text together where everybody in the boats have an opportunity to communicate with each other real time, right? So I tell everybody, don't share spots, but share as much as you will when you get a fish, or let's say you've moved four fish in the last hour, just shoot a group text. Hey, you know, rabid squirrel, fishing fast on rocks anything that can help each other and it's been one of the funnest things when, when we serve dinner we have Q&A with the guides and it's been one of the funnest things that we've seen over the years is seeing that group of anglers working together on dialing in patterns faster 
And uh, we think Leech is a great home for it because of all of the different regions and lakes that I've musky fished over the last 25 or 30 years. I absolutely love Leech. I love the sense that you have deeper structure, you have shallow structure, you have rocks, you have weeds, but you also have a phenomenal sand thing going out there as well, which can be an awful lot of fun. And uh, so to introduce customers to the idea of just looking at sand as an opportunity to catch muskies and how they can apply that elsewhere has been a lot of fun over the years as well. I think one of the key components that you talked about, Bob, is networking. And uh, it's something that Jeff and I have brought up with different people that we've talked to on the podcast over the years. A network of fishermen can definitely make the difference. And uh, as guides, as a bunch of different people that are just normal day anglers, that network can definitely make a change. And, and it's going to benefit the angler. So by doing that school and networking through that, you're only going to have a better better trip all the way around you know you think in terms of if you go on a musky trip if you, if you and a buddy plan a musky trip and you go two days without seeing a fish mentally you're going to be shot right it's a positive mental attitude and that and that ability to keep going so you know when we have a group of 20 to 24 anglers in there at once i kind of look at it if you're sitting in a tree stand and you have a bunch of trail cameras out there that can tell you what's going on it's kind of it's kind of the same thing right and so it really keeps a positive mental attitude going from from the gate and uh, it is a lot of fun all right, Brad. Well, first off, we want to thank all the guides that took time out of their schedules to come over here, even though they had nothing better to do than hang out and, and talk fishing with us. But we thank them for that. Hopefully, everybody could deal with the uh, little bit of background noise that we had on this episode. And, you know, Brad, I think this one probably gave you a little bit better, you know, more tips and tactics type stuff than what we would typically do on a Monday after a fishing show. You know, and we were able to pull in a bunch of people, and I thought we had a good conversation. Hopefully, if you guys like this, we can do it again at the Minnesota show. Brad and I will be there, and, and of course, Carrie will there because she's the brains behind this operation, too. Not only is she the brains behind Musky Mayhem Tackle, but, you know, Backlash Podcast wouldn't be the same without her either. But anyways, um, you know, Brad, I think it, t it turned out well. We want to, you know, thank everybody for coming out and talking to us and, and coming out on this Friday. I'm sure, we'll, you know, the rest of the weekend looks like the weather will be great and we should have a good show. And, uh, you know, Brad, what are your final thoughts on this episode? Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. I mean, it's always interesting to me. Uh, we didn't know how this was all going to pan out. We talked about it last week in the podcast. Um, background noise might have been an issue, but honestly, what a great format. If you think about it, we had a bunch of different guides that came in here. They were able to talk to us. We had some bait manufacturers. We had one resort representative. Um, and that's what these musky shows offer. And the beauty of it is, is get out here to these shows, go in the booths, and actually open up and start talking to some of these guys. You're going to be surprised at how much they have to offer. Yeah. So, Brad, you know, I want to, again, I want to thank all of our customers for coming out and supporting us at this show. But they have a chance to do this again in Minnesota. I believe it's the 10th, the 11th, and the 12th. We'll be back doing this in Minnesota. Just a short turnaround, three weeks. I know we'll be busting butt to get everything ready to go and, and get the show back on the road. But, you know, if you like this, you know, maybe if you drop us a message on social media, shoot us an email, backlashpodcast at gmail.com. We can certainly do this format in Minnesota if everybody found it worthwhile. And obviously we'll have different guides to choose from in, in the Minnesota show. So maybe uh, different topics if anybody has a topic they want. And I mean, even if you have your, if you have, you know, if you want to show your face at the show and be here and asking a question, we'd like that too. Because as I kind of figured, since it was seven o'clock on a Friday night, we really didn't have too many people here come and talk to us. Yeah, unfortunately, it would be great to have some listeners, you know, participate in this whole podcast idea. And uh, we look forward to that. I mean, if we could get it done in Minnesota, that'd be really good. And so, you know, 
all in all, I think it turned out really well. It was almost a guide panel type of uh, effect. But send us your ideas, send us your thoughts, questions. We're here for you. We want to uh, we want you to feel like you're participating in this podcast. And uh, thank you all for listening. Well, Brad, I can as you can hear behind you, Mike was trying to shut the show down. I see just about everybody else in this row has been in their booth. I think it's time that we do the same. I want to thank all of our listeners for putting up with us for another episode, and we'll catch everybody with a new one again next week, Wednesday.